Saving money takes work. But when you switch to Xfinity Mobile, it's easy. You'll save hundreds a year on your wireless bill and get nationwide 5G included at no extra cost. Wow, that was easy. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Welcome to the Agile Empath Podcast. Whether you're leading, managing, coaching a team, there is a human behavior aspect. We have 20 plus years in the mental health industry and have creative ways to approach situations. We're going to begin with innovative ideas, how to tap into creativity, utilizing empathy. So these are soft skills to tap into our own potential and help others tap into that potential so we can be efficient with agile methodologies. Please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Hello, my name is Alexia Georgiou. I'm a coach and consultant. I innovate and create with empathetic, agile methodologies. My website is theresilientpathway.com. Contact me, alexia at theresilientpathway.com. That's A-L-E-X-I-A at theresilientpathway.com. We have special pandemic coaching packages available. We're also providing consultation services with development and training on Zoom. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome to episode three of the Agile Empath. Today we're talking about empathy and its virtual implications. Stay tuned. With our current pandemic, organizations across industries have shown resilience to adapt work environments to mostly virtual. We have lost the physical presence with one another and the ability to show caring to one another through touch and eye contact, including pats on the back and hugs. How do we connect with one another now? There's a new normal that will define how we interact as a society and business academia within our communities and with family and friends socially. Research and multiple studies on well-being indicate connection with one another is key to life satisfaction. Our teams thrive with relational management and leaders who are humble, open, and committed. Human beings need to be heard and validated with calm, confident leaders who connect, care, and innovate with this change. So we are talking today about what empathy is and what it is not, the seven healthy habits. We're also going to talk about mirror neurons. And the key to empathy is connection. The key to happiness, according to happiness studies, is connection. So that's how we're flowing. That's why we need empathy to connect, because we know that connection fosters happiness. Empathy is not sympathy. Sympathy preceded empathy for over 300 years. This is how we describe that we feel sorrow for someone. And this is driving disconnection. In the South, you may hear someone say, bless your heart. That's sympathy. It doesn't feel that great when someone is saying that. Empathy. What is empathy? The first written record was in the 19th century. This is passion from feelings, emotion. This fuels connection. It's when we're with the other person. 
Most people, when I bring up the term mirror neurons, have not heard of the term. Um, so unless you're a psychologist or neuroscientist, this may be new and that's okay because we're all learning with technology. There's so much that's happened within the past five to 10 years. And we've had so much progress in psychology and medicine that has led to treatments of diseases. Mirror neurons have an implication with empathy because scientists have located the part of the brain where when we experience pain, there's an equal response to when we watch someone else experience pain. That same area of the brain, it's in the same area of rats. So when rats were shocked, this area lit up. And then when they saw their peers being shocked and they were not, the same part of their brain lit up. And it's called the ACC, anterior cingulate cortex. Also, there's an implication here to understand autism. Back in the 60s, the parents were blamed for their children being autistic. Am I so grateful for this understanding? Finally, we understand. There is an um, impediment in the operation of the ACC. And so if you have a family, friend, loved one um, with autism, this is something to explore to understand what's happening. I have a class that I teach elementary school children on mirror neurons. And the first time I taught it, we're teaching it on Zoom throughout school. And uh, one of the boys, his mom in the middle of the lecture, hands him candy. So he puts it in the chat and he was on mute. He says, mom just gave me candy. So big smile on his face and I couldn't see mom. Uh, because the kids take the class together and because they're young, the parents are in the room uh, following what's happening. And so um, I said, wow, okay, so the mirror neurons, what's happening now, you're so happy you got candy. Mom is equally happy that you got candy. And it's the same experience in the brain. Then all the other kids, their parents gave them candy. And I said, wow, I'm excited. You all got candy. I didn't get any candy. And I'm so happy for you. There's a smile on my face like I got candy. And that illustrated the point so well. So now when I teach the class, I'm putting in the notes to the parent, have something that your child likes, and let's have a moment where we practice this exercise. So I had a learning moment there. Um, this ACC region is more active the more empathy that we show. So that is mirror neurons. There are four qualities to empathy. This is from nursing scholar Teresa Wiseman. Perspective taking. Look at it from their viewpoint. This requires us to put our perspective aside. Avoid judgment. It discounts the person's experience. So it's not what um, the way we see it, and it's not how we would respond, and we like to judge, don't we? 
uh, because that helps us feel better in some way. Uh, and so developing empathy really is putting that aside and acknowledging this is real and this is how you're experiencing this and I acknowledge that and I respect that and I hear you. Recognize the emotion in the other person. Look at it from their side and don't judge them. That in a nutshell is empathy and it's not so easy. Uh, there's a little bit of research that I was able to find. About 10% is said to be genetic, and the rest of empathy is a skill. However, the research has not shown what part of the brain it would be genetic or in the genes. Like, they just haven't been able to pinpoint it. And so that's why we really don't know. Uh, it is with a lot with what's going on in the brain with the ACC. Um, and we don't know, though, the rest of the genes, how much we're born with. Having said that, it's something that if we really want to make a change, we're going to introduce the seven healthy habits to begin practicing immediately that will help us develop this skill. It's like going to the gym and lifting weights. You don't get to lift the heavier weights until you start doing a lot of reps with the lighter weights. And that's what this is like. Some tips with empathy. We are feeling with the other person. So we don't want to begin a sentence with, well, at least you are not going through this. Or it could be worse. Say something like, sounds like you are in a hard place. Tell me more. A response can't make something better. What makes it better is connection. That is Brene Brown. So what are these seven healthy habits that we can begin practicing? Being fully present with others. What does this involve? This involves our full attention, so having the electronics off, looking the person in the face and in the eyes, and listening, and listening actively with intent to understand and to feel and to be with them. So active listening is number two. And what is active listening? If you were listening to me actively for this time. And I said to you, what did you hear me say? And you were really listening actively. You would be able to reflect back the main points. So think of it that way. What if I had to summarize what I just heard? Would I be able to do that? Tune in to nonverbal communication. We're going to go into a little more detail about that in the next section. So that's very important. And what is the implication when it's virtual and we cannot read the whole body language? Be comfortable with pausing. Silence is a good thing. So if I'm asked a question and I say, that's a great question, hmm. Even in an interview, it's okay to do this. It's okay to take a pause and to collect our thoughts. Um, and it's respected. And when we give that other person time, so if they're really processing and thinking and speaking, 
it's very respectful just to wait for them to make further statements. Replace advice giving with questions. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to talk about a situation going on in my life. Like friends have asked me, how's this situation? Because they know. And I've given them the short update in a few sentences and then they start giving me advice. And I didn't ask for advice. I just wanted to be heard. And so it's really good to replace that with asking open-ended questions. And if that person wants advice and they ask you directly, that's one thing. Um, But if they're just talking, then we want to have those open-ended conversations with questions. Because honestly, even if that person asks us for advice, we are not in their shoes. We don't know exactly all of the details and dynamics, it's better not to give advice and to help them think about the solution with those questions, the best solution for themselves. Speak in terms of we and not me. We are together in this and that fosters connection. And imagine the other person's point of view. So think about implementing this in the climate of politics. Um, Think about implementing this in the climate of racism. Boy, are we in a society where we have strong feelings and emotions with what is happening. And that's okay. Um, It's important to own that and just know what we think and believe and to respect other people with what they think and believe without being judgmental. Can we do that? Our society needs empathy. We are more disconnected and polarized, and now we're socially isolated. Um, And it's having an effect, and I don't think we're understanding the effect that it's having on us. And in some way, we're in denial, and we're expecting to go back to what it was, And I'm not sure if it ever will, because we can't go back. We're changing and innovating with the technology that we have, and it's going to be different. Hopefully, our social connection can go back to being strong. But when we look at the polarization and when people cannot have collaborative conversations, it's a concern because there's a lot of anger. And just think about this. When we are so angry, the basic skills underlying it is fear and sadness. So try to think about that. Okay, what am I sad about and what am I afraid of? And this person's so angry. What could they be sad about and what could be causing fear in them and anxiety? That's empathy, and that will foster the connection. And understanding that we're all very stressed right now and grieving is a key to empathy. Why do I say that we're all grieving? If you have been affected by COVID-19 or the racism that we have witnessed on TV, just understand this is a worldwide pandemic of COVID-19 and racism. And all of us have been affected in some way with change 
and with loss and disappointments. Anytime we lose something that we're connected to, then we go into a process of grief. Doesn't mean depression. It just means a grief process that could be up to six months. Um, I think now the psychologists are saying it could be a little longer and be okay. We don't want to stay stuck in it. But about six months is the norm to go through stages. The stages are not linear, meaning we don't go through them in a row. And we can cycle through each part in a day, in a week, in a month. It just is. And so the first one is denial. How could this really be happening? Is this really happening? And then the next one is anger. I'm really mad this is happening. The next one is bargaining. Sometimes I think, what would life be like if this hadn't happened? If we didn't have the virus and the racism and the statues being taken down, what would be going on in the world and in my life right now? How would it be different? Depression? Boy, am I really sad that this has happened and that... It won't be the same, and it's not the same, and I miss my friends, and I miss my social time with them, and I miss travel. And then the next one is acceptance. Okay, so I accept this, the parts that I cannot control I'm letting go, and the parts that I can control I am acknowledging, and I'm making a plan of what I can do. Because when we make a plan with what's in our control, that really helps us to move away from the grief process and to grow from it. So just because we've experienced change or loss and have grief or something traumatic, um, it doesn't mean that we have to stay stuck in it and get depressed or have post-traumatic stress. We can experience really deep grief and trauma and come out on the other side with post-traumatic growth. How do we do that? And that's applying our strengths to situations. It's not denying what's happened. It's acknowledging and processing and working through it and looking at, okay, what's in my control and seriously letting go of what's not in our control and having that mindset. And as those areas come back to our mind, redirecting them and say, that's not in my control. And at that moment, replace it with, this is in my control and I'm doing this about it today. So if it helps you to take notes, to give yourself credit with that, uh, sometimes our brain needs to hear us say it aloud. So we may talk to ourselves. Um, I do that a lot. It's okay. Um, And I mean, at least in this day and age, people might think that you have your earphones on or if you're in your car, you're talking on Bluetooth, which is a reality. So if you're in public, it's kind of okay right now. Um, So let yourself hear the positive. And this is what's in my control. And this is what I'm going to do about it. And I let you go again. You came back in my mind. And I'm telling you, I have to let you go. uh, Because I've done everything I can. And I let the rest go. So when we're talking about the new reality and nonverbal communication, 
what are the implications virtually for empathy? 93% of communication is nonverbal, according to Mehabrian and Ferris. So of the nonverbal, 55% is body language, 38% is tone of voice, 7% is verbal. Now, there are other models that might say 60-40, 70-30, that's fine. Um, it necessarily does not have to be 93% nonverbal, and that's just how it is. What the researchers say really focus on the nonverbal when the verbal and the nonverbal is not congruent. So if it's not matching up, don't listen to the words. Listen to how they're being said and what the body is saying. What are the virtual implications? Well, that is uh, the way that the person is responding. Maybe we can only see them from the neck up. And we don't see if they have a clenched fist. Um, and they're monitoring the rest of themselves, regulating it. Um, and normally in person, we would be able to notice that. What's the implication? We may walk away and not realize and miss it. Uh, also, I was teaching an art journaling class with the really young children. It's for three to six-year-olds. And I just love to color with little children, and I teach them to color their feelings. And we make a journal that they can color their feelings in every day. And that's a great way to express themselves. And so there was a little girl, and it was her first class. And um, so she's in front of the camera. She's not used to taking a class on the camera and on the computer. And I'm giving the instructions of, okay, we're going to decorate our first page, the cover page, and we're going to draw something that makes us happy. Now she, I could see her head. She started off looking at me, and then she put her head down. Now I don't know, is she coloring and intensely coloring? Because I could not see anything else. And so when that happens, I'll bring it to the attention. You know, normally that age, I can see the parent in the room and I could see the parent walking around. Um, and I said, can, I just wanted you to know that we can't see you. Um, and so then she leaves the class. And I was so grateful that the parent contacted me and the mom was very gracious. Um, she said, well, she started crying because she didn't know what to do. And it was her first class. And she was little. She was like four years old. And so the mom said, you know, so what I did is I sat with her and we completed the class and we processed how she was feeling and the anxiety that she had and we colored it out. And so I was so grateful to that parent. And I said, you know, normally in a classroom situation, I would have picked up on the nonverbals, and I was not able to see that she was crying. I didn't know what her head down meant. Um, and so that is a virtual implication of not being able to practice empathy. There's a study on virtual empathy and it's called Virtual Empathy, Positive and Negative Impacts of Going Online Upon Empathy in Young Adults, 
A thousand young adults completed an anonymous online questionnaire that asked about daily media usage, real-world empathy, virtual empathy, social support, and demographic information. The findings. Going online had little impact on empathy and improved face-to-face -face time. Real-world empathy contributes five to six times stronger relationship than virtual empathy. So we're more connected when it's in person, but we can still experience it virtually. Nonverbal cues contribute to lower levels of empathy online. Both real world and virtual connection benefit levels of social support. So if you find another study on virtual empathy, uh, if you can send it to me, I would appreciate it because this is something that interests me a lot um, and it's something that I would like to build on. I'm anticipating there's going to be a lot more research studies from social psychology and positive psychology on the implications of our new normal and what that is going to be and how that's affecting us as human beings because we are social beings as humans. We actually thrive on connection. And the Harvard AD year study, if you haven't read it, it's worth looking at it because they started studying men in 1938 because only men went to Harvard. Um, and then they took another group in the Boston area, lower socioeconomic group of men, and they studied them throughout their lifetime. And then they started having questionnaires they even took some medical tests. They started speaking to their spouses. Eventually, they brought in the wives into the study and the children. Very thorough. And they did find that the key to happiness isn't about money. It's not necessarily even having the best health. It's about connection. So for example, uh, people who were experiencing chronic pain, they still reported high levels of happiness because they knew that they had a loved one who cared for them and that they could depend on. Um, so that was the key for them. Also money, we need a certain amount of money for happiness to be able to pay our bills and eat and eat out and have recreation. They say, and some studies say 50,000, others say 75. They say there's a threshold, and anything above that really doesn't increase happiness according to the research. So it's not about the money, it's not about the things. I think it's about travel for me because I connect with the world through travel and with people. Uh, I have great conversations and great meals when I travel. Um, and so that's for me. And, and how do we connect to the world? How do we connect with one another? What has changed with this epidemic, with pandemic? You know, and how can we foster that connection and truly experience it with empathy and have those real conversations, even if we don't understand the other person or agree with them? How can we foster that? Our society really needs it. Um, and so if you have some further research and more ideas, I'd love to speak to you and have a collaborative conversation 
alexia at theresilientpathway.com. That's A-L-E-X-I-A at theresilientpathway.com. Hello, my name's Alexia Georgiou. I'm a coach and consultant. I innovate and create with empathetic, agile methodologies. My website is theresilientpathway.com. Contact me, alexia at theresilientpathway.com. That's A-L-E-X-I-A at theresilientpathway.com. We have special pandemic coaching packages available. We're also providing consultation services with development and training on Zoom. I look forward to hearing from you. When you get a flu shot, you're protecting more than just yourself. You're protecting your family, your community, and frontline healthcare workers. It's possible to get the flu and COVID-19 at the same time, so it's more important than ever to take steps to protect ourselves and the people around us. By getting a flu shot, you greatly reduce your chance of catching the flu and spreading it to others. It's just a little shot. But it makes a big difference to all of us. The flu shot is available now at Penn Medicine Lancaster General Health. When you get a flu shot, you're protecting more than just yourself. You're protecting your family, your community, and frontline healthcare workers. It's possible to get the flu and COVID-19 at the same time, so it's more important than ever to take steps to protect ourselves and the people around us. By getting a flu shot, you greatly reduce your chance of catching the flu and spreading it to others. It's just a little shot. But it makes a big difference to all of us. The flu shot is available now at Penn Medicine Lancaster General Health. 